Hello there, guys. Welcome to another episode of Sport Plus Life, twisting things up, mixing things up. Going to uh, hopefully learn a lot today because I'm not really a motorsport aficionado. I have a lot of respect for those guys, the intensity of it, the high speed uh, action of it, and also the sort of business side of it intrigues me. And uh, one man who knows all about that is, is Clayton Kingman, who you might know on social media from Twitter to track, inspirational uh, figure who's uh, kind of I guess Clayton bulldozed your way into the, the motorsport industry from the outside because we've been having a coffee. We're just chatting in a hotel, so apologies if you, if you do hear a bit of background noise. Uh, but painter and decorators in the living room, so my wife kicked me out. We couldn't record it there at home in Cheltenham. Um, but we're talking about the sort of business side of it and how you've, you've kind of prized your way into basically a rich, a rich man's playground, isn't it, I suppose? Yeah, absolutely. It's, you know, it's a sport born of wealth, um, sadly. Um, but as we see with some of the big stories in, in Formula One and you know, some of the fan complaints, if you like, of who gets seats in, in Formula yeah. One and other things, unfortunately, it's a sport driven by money. There's no other sport where you can't go in your background uh, into the, your garden or down to the local <laughs> field and, and play it. You can't pick up a ball for, for £10 and, and go and learn uh, and practice. You know, you need thousands, hundreds, tens, millions, depending on what level you get to, to, to even practice. Yeah, I mean, that's the fascinating part. So what, what have you ended up racing? You've got background working in a construction industry on a, on a sort of day job basis to, to pay your bills. But what have you done and what cars have you driven in, in terms of the last, the last few years? So the, the whole story began um, from a tweet back in 2013. Mm. Uh, completely random. Uh, I had some Avengers uh, lounge pants, I think they're called, for Christmas. Uh, and a random tweet came back from someone I'd never met uh, with the matching slippers. Com- sounds completely irrelevant, but I'll get there. Yeah. Um, and uh, we just got chatting, became friendly. They had the capabilities to build a car. I'd always wanted to race. Uh, neither of us had any money, um, but we kept chatting. And one day, I said, "Let's let's prove a point." Did you did you have experience in cars like karting no, or a kid? Never no, even really. done a track day. Um, did you think you'd be good though? Do you know you might have uh, a flair for it? Everybody you speak to thinks they're a great racing driver, you know, because they're good on the road. Or you know, done, <laughs> I don't think I would be, to be <laughs> <laughs> good at karting. So I didn't know, but uh, it was something I wanted to try. Um, and I said, "Let's let's make it happen." And uh, I went out and built a whole proposal of sponsorship around loyalty and business services yeah. because any brand could go and support a, an experienced racing driver. And this, but this is where your transferable skills come in, I suppose, the fact that you've worked in sales and construction yeah. and, and the business side of things before, that must have been a, an asset to you for, versus someone who's coming into it cold and with no experience of, of selling themselves or anything. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's one thing that uh, a lot of drivers, very good drivers, are, are not as good as they probably could or should be at marketing and, and building the whole brand profile. Some are very, very good. Some are, some are not so mm. good. Um, and unfortunately, that's where you see, you know, some of the most talented drivers don't get to the level they possibly should, maybe because they don't have that business acumen side or the marketing side. Yeah. Um, so I built this whole proposal around loyalty and said, you know, whatever level I get to, I'll always find a, a package for you. Um, and we, we ended up building a car. So he was based in Nottingham. I was based in Bristol every other week. I'd drive to Nottingham, um, stay on his, his daughter's bed. Um, <laughs> and, and we'd build, build the car. So we built a, a Volkswagen Golf. Wow. Um, 1996 Volkswagen Golf. Classic. Stripped it out. Um, you know, did whatever we could. Uh, begged, but, borrowed, installed. I think I had a mate called Barney who had a Volkswagen. I think it was quite a Golf. It might be one of those Foxes he used to kick yeah. around in the 90s, actually. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, 
and then yes yeah, so we we built that and, and we decided to go racing uh as i said never done a track day the first time i went on track was for my race license um which i passed thankfully um <laughs> and then we that must have been scary though to, to go for that after you pull the yeah. work in to go for the license and not quite know how, how yeah good you of course um you know it's you, you go there thinking well if i, if I don't get it what what yeah. happens? I mean, I'd, I'd been involved in motorsport as a fan for, for years and I knew knew quite a few drivers and yeah. and various other people. So I had a fair idea, um, but you just never know. And, and one of the uh, the greats of British touring cars, Matt Neal, uh, happened to be there, which is, uh, you know, as a, as a youngster, I, I watched Matt as a privateer winning <laughs> races. So it was a little bit daunting, but um, his son his son was doing his race license at the, at the same time. Oh, okay. Um, so we did that and then we finished the car at four o'clock on the morning of my first race wow. and I slept in my car at Silverstone yeah uh, went to the driver's so they're all VW Golfs in this race no it's so all Volkswagen so it was the okay. uh, it's called the VAG Trophy yeah uh, complete mix two different classes um, and uh, went to my driver briefing in the morning after a quick shower and about an hour's sleep <laughs> and we only had the budget for one set of tyres, so we had to look at the weather to get, to decide whether they go wets or or slicks. Um, cut slicks, sorry. And uh, it was raining, so we didn't have much choice. We went with, with wets. and uh, To stay we, wet. We were almost late um, getting out. We almost missed our, our qualifying. Uh, straight through scrutineering. It had to drive straight out on track. Um, yeah. And we, we qualified uh, and we did reasonably well, but then the, the first race, it was bone dry the following day. Um, <laughs> so you had to, but that was that you stuck with the tyres and that was it the for the tires. whole weekend. Wow. Yeah, so, so um, as you can expect, we, we kind of fell backwards. And I think we finished uh, about 10th or 8th, which, which was, we were happy with, you know, yeah. first, first ever race. And, and the story spiralled from there, um, you know, on to various other did mini other did mini driving as well don't you mini mini, cars. mini challenge uh, uh that was in 2015 i did uh two rounds of, of the mini challenge uh, planned to do a full season and things outside of my control troll happened and uh you know so, some sponsorship disappeared not through any fault of my own yeah um and and that was that season finished sadly um and then I, I had the opportunity to go to Italy and, and help set up an Italian Formula 4 team and do some winter testing, which was all on simulators. Um, and as with motorsport, those guys ran out of money. So uh, <laughs> I'd quit my job at that point to, to go and do wow. that. Um, but it's, a bit, it's tough as well, because you're a family man. You've got, you've got two kids. You're very brave. You've got a two-year-old and a, a two-month-old yeah. as well. Is that right? So, I mean, that's against the backdrop of all of that. That must be, must be intense psychologically to deal with everything. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you, you have that side. Um, and then you have the, the financial pressure side. You know, I'm, I'm not from a, a wealthy background. I'm a working class man, um, hence the, the Twitter to track. Mm. Um, so, you know, finance is crucial. Right? You know, I don't have savings um uh, i have to earn money to pay the yeah. bills and keep the roof over over the the heads of the family so you have various pressures um and the time, pressure you said the, the complexity of earning the money is if you're having a day job as well to pay your mortgage pay your, your gas and water or whatever is that you also have to um train at some point but you're telling me you can't really train unless you're in a race car there's nothing you can do other than stay physically fit and we'll talk about the physical aspect of it of health and nutrition as well but it's that it's that kind of double-edged sword i suppose of, of having to work but then that takes you away from the track yeah i mean the only way you can really train is is simulators and they've improved tenfold um but even then basic simulators are 
to two thousand pounds plus up to hundreds of thousands if you want to wow. to go the full blown Formula One style. Um, so the only f- real training that you can do is is fitness training and and make sure that mentally and physically you're you're in a good place um, yeah. because of the concentration required. So yeah, it's like I said to to you earlier when we're we're having coffee. You can't just pick up the ball and go in your back garden. No. And have a kick well, it's funny because I cover a lot of boxing, and I've always, you know, been impressed with stories like Dillian White off the streets. Even people like Joshua Boatsy fought this past weekend in London. He's now British light heavyweight champion. There's a lot of these success stories where they've been attritional. Obviously, there's a correlation because a lot of these guys get into trouble physically and then try and hone their craft and make a profession out of it. But it's very cheap until you become a professional. They do have to pay for trainers and stuff when they become elite. But then the money becomes, you hope, kind of commensurate with that. But it's interesting because we're talking about from you're from Bristol and Lando Norris is, is from that area and his background's very different and he's been backed by by a wealthy family so it's in, not to, to begrudge people that but that's their I guess the benefit but it does seem in you know, for a sport with racing that perhaps it's not meritocratic you're not always going to get the best racing car drivers in in racing are you the way it's the way it seems to be set up no absolutely not and you know as I alluded to earlier you, you've only got to look at Formula One and the complaints of fans I mean one thing I would say is any driver that's competing at any level deserves to be there. So um, I get the when I see tweets and various stuff from different fans complaining, oh, they shouldn't have got a seat or they've only got it because of money. Um, no question, if you perform at an elite level, you've got to have a, yeah. a good degree of talent. <laughs> You're um, not someone who struggles to pass your regular driving license no, or something generally. Yeah. And, and they've still worked hard to get there nonetheless. Um, and no one should ever ever take anything away from any of the other drivers. Is there a lot of talent that goes missing? Absolutely. You know, mm. there's there's far more talented uh, drivers than than me that don't end up going racing. Um, well, you were saying that even in what British touring to- cars, touring cars that they're not even professional, which is an elite considered a pretty elite level. Not always professional drivers. So, so they're they're professional, but they wouldn't be paid as people would assume they're paid. So, uh, there's probably only two or three maybe even less drivers that would be paid by teams to race yeah other than that it's all through either business interest driver coaching uh, media appearances um or you know working for uh, for other teams and manufacturers but as a as a professional like the general public would view a professional like a formula one driver yeah and are all not... formula one drivers paid or, or is there some suggestion that some aren't paid is that how it works um they're all paid to an extent. Yeah. Some bring money to them, uh, to the party as a team, but they still get paid. So they would bring a level of sponsorship, and out of that sponsorship money, their they're, uh, they're so, so effectively, they are a net contributor to the team financially, yeah. rather than a yeah. like Lewis Hamilton who would be paid a huge amount of money out of the team. Yeah, yeah, and it just depends on the team and the level of of where they are. I mean, there's the the Maldonado uh, thing that's you know is the the main one that people talk about. Yeah. he brought a, a good level of sponsorship in that um do i think he's unfairly criticized absolutely um you know he's, he's still a good driver is he yeah absolutely you know you don't you don't race in formula one without being no. a good driver um he's worked hard to to get there as of every single one of those drivers have have worked hard um do you do you think you can figure out because obviously the lay people always look at it and they always wonder like who is the best driver you see lewis hamilton winning all these world titles is he the best driver has he got the best car has he got the most money behind him it's a complex one isn't it do you have more of a handle as a sort of expert no i mean you you have a you have a view i mean one one of the the good stories that oh from from my experiences david coulthard um probably for me when i was growing up i never put him as one of the elite drivers um yeah. you know 
And I thought, oh, he's, you know, he's good. He's, he's not one of the top Formula One drivers. I was very fortunate uh, in 2018 to sit alongside him when he won the race of champions. Um, and you then you start to appreciate... Were you navigating the, for him or something? No, so, so the race of champions is, is a, a big global event where all of the top drivers go head to head. You have a Nations Cup. Uh, and then you have the drivers one one v one in various different machinery. They're in like for like cars, so they were in the the Vol, um, who who I'm the ambassador for. So that's why I was fortunate enough to ah, sit alongside okay. uh, him. And he was up against Petter Solberg. So you have a world rally champion, a yeah. world rally cross champion as well against you know David from Formula One. Um, you know he's done various other other bits as well. But there's two completely different um, styles of of motorsport. Yeah, uh, and and David David won, um, and his his whole transition and his style is so smooth, and and the difference that you suddenly start to appreciate the the levels that there are in motorsport. Yeah. Um, it's a phrase <laughs> I hear in boxing a lot. Levels, are, I yeah, think that's the, true, the yeah. buzzword. Well, it's, a, it's weird because I was in a saloon car in 2009, just a few days after Jensen Button. He squeaked to the title, didn't he? He had that great start in his car. Was, yeah, who was he driving for? It was uh, um, Braun. Braun. He was driving for Braun, and um, he got back, and it was he obviously hadn't slept, I think, since he what the Brazil Grand Prix. And he came and it was Blue Water Shopping Centre in Kent and he was doing this thing with press where he was driving them around in saloon cars and we were actually flying around and there's a guy from the Times trying to interview him and he was going through, you know, underground parking and kind of massive handbrake turns and he was doing this while talking and like having a conversation with people. It was just, and that was quite incredible to see that level of skill set, fluidity with his gearbox and acceleration and just ability to, to navigate, you know, obstacles like flying concrete columns coming towards us and everything. It's quite something to behold when you, when you see those guys. Yeah, and, and to answer your, your question, if you like, when people talk about, you know, who's the best driver, you know, they, they just got the best car. You, the better the car you have, t- to some extent you have to be a better driver to be able to handle the increase in speed and, and yeah. benefits. I mean, don't get me wrong, you know, the better the car, the better the handling in theory and, and all of that kind of stuff. But you still, you know, when you talk about the speeds that these guys in in Formula One are doing, yeah, the level of concentration that you need to to perform each weekend is is incredible. You know, we'll get to the the fitness side of of motorsport and and my experience of of what I've looked into and the people that I speak to is is prompting GTs. But Formula Ones were probably even even higher in terms of the G forces, the concentration required, yeah, the dehydration, all of that stuff. People don't see having to be light as well, isn't it? Strong while light is. Yeah, I'm, I think the weight's gone up now, but the, uh, the weight used to be something like sixty-eight kilos. They wanted drivers wow. to be down to, which is is really light. Yeah, and that was because that would allow the teams to then put ballast in the car. Yeah, and they could place the ballast where it was more beneficial to the handling of of the car. Um, it's amazing for like tall guys. I think like Mark Webber was what six three or so. Wasn't yeah, he? Ricardo's uh, quite tall. And, yeah, reasonably, reasonably tall as well. So. It's a it's a low weight um, for for them to get now. I know that a lot of the drivers used to. I think now the minimum weight or the the target weight is around eighty kilos. Oh, okay, that's pretty. Um, so they've they've increased it. Yeah. Um, so yeah, all of that kind of thing is people don't see all of that aspect of of it, and, and even to the extent of helmets. Um, I was chatting to to a guy, and uh, he's involved in one of the helmet manufacturers, and he was telling me. That uh, a hundredth of a uh, of a gram or something ridiculous would save them like a hundredth of a second per lap. Really, 
Um, wow. So they were looking at the different paints that you use on helmets. Can you imagine if you just ro- rocked back up after a, the off-season yeah. in the winter and your driver was <laughs> too yeah. stone overweight? It must yeah. feel like everyone must be just devastated, I suppose, at that point. I mean, it, it's interesting. I um, Juan Pablo Montoya was obviously very, very good in Formula 1. Yeah. Uh, he races in IndyCar and he's certainly not in the shape that he was He was there. Um, so is IndyCar more forgiving in that sense? Because um, they're big old sort of saloon cars, aren't they? They're... I mean, I think... Maybe it is. Maybe the yeah. weight weight setups setups are different. Um, but he's a hugely talented driver. Um, the, it's but you talk we talk about the physical stuff of it as well. And you were talking about because you have to the complexity for you is why you're waiting for sponsorship. You're waiting to go again. You have to to keep in great nick, don't you? And train and, and you work for you've got a supplement amb- sort of amb- ambassadors role yeah. which helps, I suppose, with the nutritional side of things. Yeah. So I work with uh, EQ Nutrition. You actually work with um, a lot of boxes. Um, Dillian White being being one of them yeah. actually. Um, so you know, again, they're, they're trusted, sport-approved products. So it's all about um, you know we have the same the same legislations as any of the Olympic athletes. We have to abide by the water rulings of of what you can or can't yeah. have. So uh, that's that's quite important as well. Um, so yeah, you, the challenge is you know the winter is where the hardest work is done. Certainly when you're outside of the elite level of you know Formula One. Yeah. Um, British uh, touring cars, you know, any of the GT, the hard work is done in the winter. Uh, that's when your your sponsorship sh- secured, um, and you're making sure you're on point. Well, tell us how many emails you have to send out regarding sponsorship because um, that was pretty phenomenal. I mean, told yeah, me. I send between two thousand and three thousand individual emails every every wow. year, um, and that's not a, a blanket email to you know info at. It's uh, research, find the company. Um, you have to personalize it know, to them. And yeah, personalize say what you can it do for them. Get it to the right contact. Um, you know, there's an awful lot of work. I mean, there was a sponsor a couple of years ago that we were talking to on a, it would have been my biggest ever deal and um, big company. I met them three times in, in London, put a proposal. They were extremely happy. And then um, the the marketing director left. Um, wow, yeah. And then, you know, we were chasing and chasing and chasing. Um, it's quite often what happens in journalism, actually. You know, an editor likes yeah. you to be a presenter yeah. for something and then they leave and it's the whole thing changes. It's interesting. That. Yeah, so, so then we put through to the other person that we'd met and um, they kind of moved on to so speak to this person. They changed departments and it all just collapsed to, you know, around you. So you're in a position where you think, oh, yeah, we're, we're going to do this. Yeah. Um, and then it can collapse at the ninth hour and that's um, a difficult conversation with I presume with, with your wife or your girlfriend uh, when, you're, when you're back at home and that, that's changed in the financial yeah, I mean, picture for, for, for me uh, at that time it wasn't so much because I had full time employment outside of oh, okay. the industry um, but that's hard to juggle that as well though, isn't it for sending 3,000 emails and, and yeah, doing a good job um, you know you, you've got to balance it with your employer um, you've got to take holiday to you know go and do test days and, and things yeah. like that um, which that does need some persuading with, <laughs> your, with your wife as you can imagine yeah um, so yeah it's pe- people don't see all of the work you know I was trying to figure out the, the other week how many hours it is to how many minutes of racing um, and I would probably say it's certainly for every minute it's certainly an hour for every minute yeah. uh, of racing you need an hour of, of work off of it wow. as a bare minimum yeah, um, so that's times sixty. It's quite a lot, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. You think about it. And you're also racing for a whole weekend, so that's yeah. a huge amount of time. Yeah, so I'm talking of actual seat time. So yeah. you know, for instance, most races outside of you know 
the Formula One and and uh, GT racing. But if you go to to Tin Top Racing, for instance, twenty minute races. Yeah. Uh, if you go to GT hour stints, you know, if it's a twelve hour race, um, or you know, British GT is a two hour race. You've got and that's hours. because it's so draining. Tell me, because alluded yeah. to the physical stuff, but you talked to me about that before and the calorific demands of, I suppose, your body going through so much stress while you while you're yeah, driving. Yeah. So so I um. It's always intrigued me the whole fitness aspect of it, and uh, I was talking to ProDrive, who run the Aston Martin factory team, and Verisov as the former uh, Subaru. I think they run for Colin McRae, mm. um, and their driver performance team uh, do a lot of analysis and assessment pre-race, during race. So if you take a Le Mans twenty-four hour race, for instance, which is kind of the the, the pinnacle for for every driver if, you know if you can't do f1 everybody wants to do le mans mm. um they burn on average 1200 calories an hour wow um over 24 hours so that's so every burning, hour so you know if they do like 30, four hours calories, so. um you know if they do a four hour stint it depends how, how so 24 hours make. they're basically burning like 10 times as much as an average man would well, in, yeah, you know, if you day. think average man in a day is 2,500, um, you know, if on average in a 24-hour race, they would do stints range from uh, six, uh, well, three to six to eight. Depends how many drivers. Some have five, some have four. So when um, Fernando Alonso did it, he only drove for eight hours of that. I don't know how many, how yeah. many he did, actually. He did quite a long stint because you generally do, I think you're allowed to do two or three-hour stints, then you have to do a driver change, and then yeah. uh, I think it's two hours you're allowed to do. Um, so you've, got, yeah, you've got to be nutritionally balanced, so energised, also your brain's got to yeah. be alert as well, haven't you? That, those you know, in the dark. If you take something like Bathurst um, in Australia, it's a 12-hour race in the dark the most incredible circuit for me it's probably the best circuit in the world really um certainly on a, my bucket list to, to drive <laughs> what type of cars are they uh so the they would be anything from aston martins ferraris lamborghinis um or any of the supercars really um supercars race against each other or yeah one? against okay, each other yeah. um and you have things like kangaroos run out in the circuit you know, so it's, <laughs> it's pitch black you're trying to navigate um you know the mountain section, which is, so, so, yeah, incredible. so how do they eat enough calories to keep going in those races? So, so they start um, the whole uh, nutrition and and uh, taking on water seven days prior to to a race. Um, so that carbo loads to basically get over. So, so yeah, so pumped. so they would they would put a lot of carbs in kind of the day before, um, but certainly the hydration side is is, is a week before they start. Where do the calories go then? Is that physical movements driving a car, or is it? The, um, the process of your brain operating at that high level where it, you're trying to process information it's the brain um physically it's very demanding mentally very demanding um you know your heart rate can range from anything from kind of 130 to uh, up to kind of 230 at, uh, at stages in in there so you know the whole aspect and view of uh, it's easy driving a car the pressures that you have physically, mentally, um, to keep that concentration level, yeah. you know your breaking points. You know, these guys at Le Mans are doing it in the dark. You know that, and they'll be within a tenth or a couple of tenths of a second every single lap. You know, consistency is key, and it's yeah. 
bang, 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 you know, every time. It's, it's incredible. And the psychology of it is interesting as well, isn't it? Because you talk about um, being, you know, in Formula One on your own for a car for that length. There's a sense of isolation. And even within teams, often these guys are competing with each other, isn't there? Like the Rosberg-Hamilton drama at Mercedes and things like that. That must be an odd situation where you label teammate, but effectively you're your rivals for, for attention and, and equipment and all that kind of stuff. It's, it, it must take a certain type of person. I don't know if you've met all these drivers and you've been around them to, to want to be a driver. Yeah, I mean, you've, you've got to be mentally very tough. Um, motorsport's a, a great uh, sport to be in. Um, it's brutal. Um, you know, it, it's, it's draining. Mm. You know, you can put a lot of hours in do all of the right things and, and not get anywhere. To make you, a break on the car, yeah. essentially. Or. Uh, yeah, you know, you've got mechanical failures. Um, just to get on the grid, the challenges that you have there yeah. um, uh, are obviously huge. Um, and, and people, as I said, you know, very talented people don't get the seat time they, they should um, get, you know, and then there's, you know, others that get plenty of seat time that others will look at them and say, oh, you know, should they? Um, well, f- for me, yeah, as I said, everybody deserves wherever they are. In but you can't almost sport. think about that, can you? If you're trying to get, compete with them as well, you can't sit no. home worrying about other people, whether they're talented or not. You no. have to kind of laser focus on what on what you're doing, your process. Yeah, I guess. I, and my view is, you know, everyone who's racing is is talented. Everyone deserves to be there. You know, if you're racing, whether you've gone out and earned the money yourself, whether you've got it, whatever, you've put yourself in a position to to do that. You've gone through all the blood, sweat, and tears to make it happen and you go and do these race weekends which you know the highs and lows and, and peaks and troughs of of that uh, are huge you know um yeah. you can go from one minute being first to you know a puncture which is completely not your fault yeah. uh, or a mechanical issue but it's, it's difficult with your family as well and i know this you know if you have work reversals things go wrong and you're getting if sponsorship fall through and stuff like that it must be difficult to keep your sort of positivity and optimism because that must mindset people talk about mindset in business don't they like these entrepreneur speakers always talk about you know keeping yourself because if you don't try you're never going to get so it's kind of putting yourself in that mindset but that must be a constant battle for you to remain positive when when things are kind of uh, falling away yeah, and I think the only solace that drivers really find is when they're sat on that uh, seat on yeah. the grid because other than that, there's always uh, stuff going on around you, you know. You're always having to manage your sponsors at race events. You're always having to find new sponsors, keep your, your existing sponsors happy, find drives, make sure you've got a seat. You've got to save, um, yeah, you've got to save energy for the race itself yeah, as well at some point. Uh, you know, damage, you've got to have provisions for damage. You yeah. know, the, the damage bills can be huge and, again someone could hit you uh, completely unrelated to your fault and you end up with a 50 60,000 pound uh, damage bill wow. you know it's how much you need to how much money do you need just to have one race at say a lower level of motorsport whatever you so you, you know more than me what to pick I mean it the first season that I did in the VAG trophy uh, we spent 10,000 including buying the car but we did, did everything ourselves wow um, and that was very very low yeah um, realistically you're talking for a weekend two thousand pounds upwards i mean you could maybe go and get a real kind of club once you've got the car it's two thousand pounds cost no so you could arrive and drive for for two thousand okay um if you went to maybe a local club event you could maybe get for about a thousand fifteen hundred but then you've got your race license which is uh, keeps going up but probably about 150 pounds uh, a medical sixty to hundred pounds. Yeah, do you need insurance as well, do you? Um, you do don't you need have special to health have... insurance or not? Um, 
you do if you want to make sure if anything, you know, We've got to other countries, I guess happens. you have to maybe. Or... There's no requirement, but what, again, another thing people don't realise is house insurance. For instance, if you own your own house and you die doing motorsport, most insurance companies you're not covered. Really? Um, you know, have to check what, yeah. what criteria, because it's classed as an extreme... Well, speaking to an ex-Cheltenham town footballer, actually, and I'm hoping to get him on the podcast, but he was saying that his insurance didn't pay out when his career ended with a back problem because they said it was an unnatural movement. It was at training, but he was bending down. He was a central defender right. or something. They said it wasn't a football injury, so it didn't pay out. So, yeah. I mean, that's a scary thing. It's when you hear about that with pet insurance and stuff, don't you? That yeah. You're never quite sure. Yeah. You put all this money into it and you get yeah. this mindset of security, but actually how secure is it? And are yeah. you better off trying to save money? It's a tricky one. Yeah, it's difficult. I mean, I, I've always said, I'd, you know, when I started this whole journey, I'd never put my money in, A, because I don't have it, and, and B, you start to spiral, um, yeah. you know. It's about habit, it's like gambling, yeah. I guess, in a way. Yeah, you know, once you, oh, well, well, I've got this money, so I'll just go and put it into X, Y, Z. And um, and that's that's the challenge, you know. You're not spent necessarily spending your own money, but you always have that huge amount of risk every time you, yeah. you get out in the car. Um, thankfully, Touchwood, you know, motorsport is, is pretty safe as you don't hear of that many... Um, yeah, compared Tragic to incidents, previous really, um, you know, because the safety uh, criteria and the, the whole developments of cars. Do, do you need like, a bit of? And it, it obviously it will change, I guess, in fatherhood because I think it will change for all of us. But that complexion change, you have to have a little bit of a, a do and a dash and a, and a sense of risk and an, an enjoyment of risk to to be a racing car driver. But has that developed in, in space having your kids the last couple of years? Do you do you think about that more? Um, or is it in the instant, the moment you're there, you're in, it, in flow? In the moment, you're kind of in in the car, um, focused, you know, man and machine, and you kind of shut everything else out. Of course, it's still in the back of your head, but, you know, the moment you start worrying about risk is the moment you become a danger on a racetrack, for, for me. Yeah. Um, you have to have an understanding of element risk, but if you start it's like, worrying it's about... It's like people on the road who are like over-hesitant and you're not yeah. sure what they're going to do in this sort of thing. They're going to pull out, they're going to stay, or that, that suddenly becomes a sort of confusion for people. Almost you prefer people who yeah. are just authoritative and, and just drive through, don't you? Yeah, I mean, you have to, obviously, you have to respect the risks that are there, but you can't worry about every little thing and, and that because you, you just become a danger and, and you'll never be competitive. I mean, I've raced and I always race pretty much um, having to race with budget in mind. And yeah. there's so many drivers that have to do does that. Does that budget apply to fuel as well? Do you have to manage fuel? Uh, no, so it's a... F- I mean, it, it does become part of it, but fuel's not a huge budget in the kind of racing that I do. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it's, it's the damage budget. You know, when you're racing in the back of your mind, knowing that if you have a big accident, you can't afford to... So, so do you go into races thinking I can't win this have you ever been in a race where you thought I can win this with the budget the car I've got or is it a case of doing the best relative to your resources which is a, an interesting yeah, mindset yeah I mean you never go in not thinking you can win you always think you can win um, otherwise what, what are you even there for um, but I mean is winning is it more proportional to what you've got in hand in, in a sense yeah, yeah I mean you need to Formula 1 they must feel like that no one seems to think that guys outside of Vettel or Hamilton at the moment can win it seems to no be. I mean I think if, if you spoke to every driver do they believe they could win you know absolutely they they do do they believe that they can win in the car they've got mm, I don't know you know it, it, yeah. that that's kind of yeah it, it's always a challenge but you've always got to to believe you can win um, you know and if you if you're not convinced yourself that you can win 
then it's great taking part but really what's you know what's what's the point you might as well go into a track day in, in my yeah. view um yeah and and in motorsport anything can happen um you know you look at some of the british touring cars last year there were some incredible races where changes in weather um brought people that otherwise have been relatively further back on the grid up yeah. to the to winning races and second thirds in, in races and that's you know that's the joys of motorsport is that anything can happen at any point you know you could have a yeah if it rains some people love it don't yeah. they as well it's interesting with Jensen Button he used to love rain yeah, yeah it was the key drive, yeah. drive through fields and stuff so where are you now you're sat in, we're sat in this uh, Hotel Devan in Cheltenham you've got um, you've got your, your guns out you're looking fit you're looking in, in good shape if people could see you we'll put a picture with the uh, social media stuff but uh, you've obviously been training over the winter are you still looking for a sponsorship and what, what event are you looking at do you look at the event and then try and get sponsorship or do you look at sponsorship and then look at which motorsport to, to go for yeah I mean it, it depends because you know you have people come on kind of angle stuff in a direction um, I'm always looking for sponsors at the moment um, you know some stuff we're working on the winter that didn't quite come to fruition um, you know one thing that I have which is kind of I'm constantly working uh, on building my brand and exposure and opportunities with my sponsors even when I've not raced it's all about driving that value still you know yeah uh, you know someone like APM Customs who have been with me since the the very start um, I'm always kind of going right okay where can I do this where can I do that and building my network so you know th the last couple of years um, have not been great racing um, I say that you know I still got to do some great things, but I've not done a full season. You're the Goodwood then. Festival of Speed, were you doing? Yeah, twenty twenty sixteen. I got to drive the James Hunt Lotus Fifty Nine oh. from Rush, um, nice. And that was a an interesting story, and that kind of shows the the highs and lows of mo motorsport, if you like. And well, he was like a Lothario, wasn't he? I mean, not, presumably they, in the physical demands of Formula One, you can't party like he used to party. Or no, well, do I don't think you could now, no. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but so so I again, I'm always working at. 2015 had been a, a challenging year as, as I explained and um, I, I met the guy by chance that owns this the, the Lotus 59 that was used in the, the film Rush with Chris Hemsworth um, and I said look what, what are you doing with it and he said oh well, my, my father wanted to, to drive it at Goodwood but you know he passed away you know I think it was a month before I'd met him yeah um, so we don't know what we're going to do with it and I said well you know what if I can get it to Goodwood for you he said, "If you can get it to Goodwood, you can you can drive it." Um, so, I went and made lots of phone calls, lots of emails, and said, "Look, I've got this amazing car. Um, you know, can we bring it to to Goodwood?" And and oh, so you mean get it to Goodwood? You mean get a spot for it? At Goodwood? Yeah, because yeah, yeah, you, you don't just apply to to All Goodwood right, and you know <laughs> you don't pay like an entry fee. It's kind of very selective of who ah. who who can come and you know who can drive and and various other bits. So. I managed to get it there after six weeks, the the cool one. They said, yep, we'd love it there. You know, um, who's driving it? I was like, well, can can I drive it? And they said, yeah, you you can drive it. Um, what a moment. I must have so, told yeah, so that was... And, and until you actually get there, um, you're kind of like, well, is this really going to happen? Because so many times you things are promised and agreed and they fall through. Um, and I'd never never driven any rear-wheel drive, so there's this kind of different styles yeah how old was the front. car so it was uh 76 uh no 60 this is 50 1960 or 60 yeah 1960 what's well, when james um, hunt yeah so really yeah so it's yes. i didn't think it was that from the, even from the film i didn't realize it was that young yes yes old. back in the <coughs> 60s 
so yeah so the, the car was there we arrived um I'd, I'd driven it for 20 minutes on a track in um landau in in south wales uh just to shake it down and kind of know i knew what i was doing <laughs> and it's it's a very tight um I was, I was a little bit bigger then as well, so it was very tight uh, to to get in the cockpit and and the gears. So you drove and, on the regular road. Uh, no, so it was a, a circuit. Um, oh, okay. So yeah, it wasn't. It's not road legal. So we arrived and and first uh, first time we pull up to the start line, um, off off we go and it something didn't quite feel right with it, um, and we got to the top of the hill, um, and we'd kind of plodded along all the way up the hill and uh, and the intercooler which was a brand new cooler um had cracked so we wow. we dripped oil all the way up um we didn't have one so with good us. would you actually race to you or was it just no it's a hill climb so yeah. some people do time runs ours was just a demonstration okay um so the owner had to drive back to to Froome and and, and pick one up five and a half hours the cooler um yeah another wow. another cooler um we got that he got that installed at half past 10 at night uh and then the next day um we were off again <laughs> and uh yeah i uh i caught the uh the mud there's a little bit of mud on the the circuit and uh tried to correct it and uh it spat me across the grass and into the hay bale wow. so i broke all of the, the steering uh arm sadly um but again back to Froome he went got the parts um why Froome is that with lotus that's where he was based so oh, they okay. had all their spare parts um and then sunday we we finally managed to to make it happen and i the owner's ashes uh, were with me in the car, so it was uh, quite a nice moment. James to, Hunt's? Uh, no, so the, the owner of oh, the, the car, owner. Oh, right. um, John Arnold, his, um, his ashes were with me in the car. Um, so that was, that was a nice... Don't drop those. Nice moment, <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, wow. Yeah, and it was, it was an incredible... I mean, I met um, Ian Poulter at the event, actually, which is a, a really interesting story. So I sat eating my, uh, my lunch in the Drivers Club, which was, was really cool to be part of. Wow. You know, the driver's club, Pops. he's got... You know, so he form, he's a motor car fan, is he, as well? Ah, uh, massive fanatic. Yeah. So he owns he's an Arsenal fan, Ferraris. as well, as well as being a Yeah, unfortunately, and... football <laughs> isn't, uh, isn't his strongest uh, point. But um, he, someone had asked for a photo with him, and they were struggling, so I offered it. And I, I knew who he was, but, but I not, couldn't quite remember the name. Yeah, um, it's funny when you see sports people who, in the context, yeah. you know Ryder Cup player, Ian Poulter, golf yeah. star, but then when you see him... Maybe yeah. in plain clothes or not golfing clothes, not in, not yeah. on a golfing screen. It's weird. Yeah, Strange that this. happens to me all the time. Actually, with sports people walk into Sky yeah. Sports, and obviously you've seen them millions of times on TV playing their sport, but in a suit or you know a t-shirt, mm-hmm. it looks completely different. He had normal trousers on, so that yeah. was. Uh, um, and he just came and sat down on my table, and we were talking about my my whole story and and racing, and uh, we've stayed in touch ever since. And and you know he's he's a great guy. Um, yeah, I absolutely. Uh, admire him for for what he does. That's a tough psychological um, sport. I mean you could compare that in some ways to racing, couldn't you? The individuality of it and yeah. the, the fact you kind of you know, competing with people who I guess are your friends are on tour with you. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And you know, if you look at Ian, I think it was twenty seventeen, um, he had a really difficult year. Um mm. and and I remember speaking to him about his clothing brand. Oh yeah. Said, you know, what what are you doing with it? Um I just seen you shutting it down, you know, can I can I get someone to take it on? And he said, no, I'm, sh- I'm shutting all of my business interests to focus on golf. Um, and he got himself back fit from his injury. Yeah. Uh, and 2018, you know, was the Ryder Cup year, he got himself in the Ryder Cup. Um, and, and he had a phenomenal year. And it's that whole focus mentality. He's, he's very driven, very focused. And, and for me, that's, you know, some of the, the traits I really admire. Very down to earth. Um, you know, 
lovely, lovely guy. And, so so, um, so what, I just wonder whether, you know, is that a role you could see yourself, whether, I don't know whether you're still ambitions of being like a, an elite driver doing that for a job or whether you'd think at this stage, would you, you know, your experience of, of, of kind of, you know, beating your own drum, being a, a, market, a marketer, you could work for some of these guys and their businesses to, sports marketing seems a real natural fit for, for you. Yeah, absolutely. You know, the, the whole marketing aspect, you know, that's what I've been doing as a consultant for Vol. Um, I just put together their global three-year sales and marketing strategy. Um, my ambitions are still the same and, and however many years tick by where, you know, maybe I'm not doing a full season, I'm doing the odd event and, yeah. and maybe sponsors come and go or whatever. Um, I still want to compete at the highest level. I still want to get as far. That's that's just what's in me. Yeah. Um, you know, I have no intentions of... So you just want to know at the end of the day that you didn't leave to a, You want to go to whatever level you get yep. to, you'll be happy with. I suppose it's the time you decide that when you've had enough, I guess. It's... Yeah, absolutely. I mean, my, my aim is probably pretty much every driver is Le Mans. Um, is it yeah. achievable? <laughs> I believe, <laughs> you know... Well, not if you don't do it, is it? Not if you don't try. No, I mean, I was told it never... Do- drive at Goodwood and I did Um, you know and that was kind of within three years of starting racing so every driver dreams of Le Mans it seems to be the buzzword at the moment when you ask any driver what do you want to do Le Mans did you respect Um, Fernando Alonso for saying for leaving Formula 1 and wanting to do a bit of everything and done uh, Le Mans and and Indy you know he'd had a tough few years at McLaren and it comes back to the whole thing of you know if you don't believe you can win are you doing it why are you doing it Uh, and I think that was probably a part of that was with with Fernando um, and doing the dis- different disciplines though is a way of cementing your skill set yeah. isn't it in a unique way whereas you say in Formula 1 for example if you're in a really good car no one's ever going to quite know in a different circumstance how you how you deal with it it's a bit like the um, I liken it a bit to the the Messi-Ronaldo uh, <laughs> argument in that you know if you sit and do it in Formula 1 and you don't go and do anything else me as a driver I know that they've obviously hugely talented and amazing things what Fernando's doing is showing that he can go and get in any car, any type of car, and go and win races. Yeah. Um, <coughs> Messi, me. Messi can't do it on a cold night in Stoke, is what everyone said, wasn't it? That was the yeah. Uh, the argument, so you but... know the whole argument of Messi Ronaldo is, you know, Messi's done it in Spain and and that's it. But Ronaldo's gone and done it everywhere. So who's better? Could you, so for people, like what any because quite we talked both sharing it very interesting health. You work for EQ Nutrition and I had a sports science background, which I'm sort of trying to kind of get back into a little bit. What tips do you have for people wanting to be racing car drivers in terms of health uh, supplements and also mindset? Do you guys do you meditate? Do you sort of go through visualization before you race? What, what's the process? Yeah, so um, fitness wise, yeah, you've got, you've got to be fit. Um, it's a basic CV fitness, isn't yeah. It? a good mix so uh, you know I just started working with um, performance physics Simon Hayes who's uh, used to be the uh, PT for McLaren Formula 1 team he's worked with all of the top drivers um, and then I was working with a, a PT that was more aesthetic kind of bodybuilding aspect so mm. we're actually bringing that all in together um, so uh, Tommy Owen my, my PT of I went to school with him ironically um, him <laughs> and Simon are now working together to build a programme that gives me the performance that I need but also the aesthetic appearance that I, that I need to, to get a good balance yeah um, aesthetic experience but for the brand and stuff you want to look yeah fit. so so you know for, for me working with EQ Nutrition you know they work with Olympic athletes so they, they appreciate that you, a sports physique if you like yeah um, then you have your own personal ambitions but equally if I need to be in a certain physique for a certain level of racing then that comes first and foremost mm. but if I can balance it uh, and it doesn't um 
quite complimentary, isn't it? You just have to be relatively light, I guess, you yeah. can't put too much muscle on. Maybe. Yeah, light. Um, obviously, the more muscle you have, the more energy you, you burn during races um, and you need. So, yeah, that that's that's key. Um, mentally, I have a regime before I race. Um, I literally just headphones on and go for a walk. Um, yeah. Music on. Um, don't speak to anyone. And, uh, <laughs> but you need to focus, and focus is different, difficult in this society, isn't it? I'm recording this on my phone, but often we're getting messages and distractions. I guess you have to, you do sort of just zone, zone out and zone in. Yeah. So yeah. So I, you know, I kind of visualise what I hope will happen. Um, other drivers do different things. You know, some work with mental coaches, some do meditation. Um, what would I say to people wanting to get into motorsport? Mentally, you've got to be very strong. Um, you know for every believe in yourself haven't you yeah you know you've got to accept the knocks and get back on the horse straight away and there will be lots of them and you know you'll think you're, you've done something and then it will fall down um, you've just got to keep banging those doors we were saying before we started recording it's difficult because I have this with sports journalism people say to me I want to get into it I want to do that and you think I think of you know my wife I think of all the christenings I've missed birthdays I've missed working weekends all the friends I've lost touch with and it's a, it's a sad but you know you work in sports journalism I work out of sync with, with everyone else so that, that can be a rub and obviously I'm not risking myself in a racing car or the boxes I speak to getting boxed boxed my, my ears in but it's sometimes difficult isn't it I know you were talking about this when people want to emulate you do you recommend it because if, without knowing someone else's psyche it's very hard to say yeah go and do it and then you find out that five years later they're sort of they're miserable and just want a day job <laughs> yeah I mean I, I would always say you know create your own dreams and, and follow your own dreams if that's to be a racing driver and do it you know the the glamour of any job and I would imagine it's the same with football boxing whatever yeah. the glamour that you see in front of the camera and the face of it there's a lot of blood, sweat and tears that have gone behind that. And you've got to be prepared. The, enjoy for, the process, haven't you? I think you've got to enjoy the dirt. Yeah. yeah. You've, got, you've got to be prepared to, to face that um, and, and go through that. Um, you know, it's tough. No question. Uh, with or without money, it's tough. Um, mm. At any elite level of sport uh, or any good level of sport, it's tough. Um, so you've got to pre- be prepared mentally to, to take those knocks. Um, but... As I say to everyone, never, never let anyone tell you you can't, you can't do anything. Um, it's one of my favourite quotes from uh, Pursuit of Happiness, actually, Will Smith. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and I believe that, you know, the amount of times people said, you'll, you'll never do that, or you can't do this, or you can't do that. We can, um, we can limit ourselves quite a lot, can't we? We're not careful. Yeah. We can sort of say that we accept things as facts that other people tell us. So. Yeah, you, you've got to believe in your own ability and, and believe in what you're doing. Um, you know, and, and with social media, sadly, you'll get a lot of negativity um but you get connections like through social media which you did as well so that's the flip side right of modern modern life i think yeah absolutely so you've got to kind of ignore the negative side and and use positives you know i've grown my network substantially over the last three years when i've not really done much racing at all apart from some great events yeah um and and i've built you know a great catalog and i've managed to get myself at events you know grand prix ball uh which again this year i'll be at maybe not driving maybe i will drive um, Where's that? Uh, it's at the Hurlingham Club in London. So oh, it's the yeah. week of the Formula One. Everyone gets some tuxes today and stuff like that. Yeah, so uh, last year, David Coulthard demonstrated the Red Bull um, and uh, the Car, previous... car not the drink. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the drink was there too. Oh, right. Yeah, I'm sure it was, yeah. <laughs> as as yeah. obviously lots of other drinks. Yeah, um, available. And the, and the year before that, uh, I drove a different James Hunt car, the James Hunt Hesketh Dassel, at the event with Pierre Gasly in the Red Bull. Awesome. Um, so, you know, I spent some time with Pierre and, and Tiff Nadell and Eddie Jordan. 
so so I've got to do some amazing things and that's all through building my network and, and growing that um, and as I said I'll be back there this year it's for the Prince's Trust this year um, and they've got a, a real humdinger of a car to, to demonstrate um, which I sorted through my network and how I've grown my, my profile and the connections that I have yeah. You know, that's well, we connected through LinkedIn as well, didn't we? So it's yeah. interesting, that's what it happens everywhere, I think. And LinkedIn's an interesting yeah. social media platform, it seems to be a relatively healthy one that people are putting content up and connecting, but not necessarily as, as much sort of uh, trying to drag people down. Yeah, yeah. I mean, obviously, I have a Twitter to track story, but but I don't really use Twitter that much. Um, well, let's know where the best place to follow your story is, yeah, it? absolutely. So, so my Twitter is at Clayton Kingman, um, and then on Facebook, I have uh, forward slash Clayton Kingman Racing. Um, and and LinkedIn is is my big one. That's where I do a lot of my stuff because I just find it it's a great platform with the network that I've built. It's changed now as well, isn't it? A lot of content yeah. sharing and, and and articles on there. Yeah, it's it's really good for for all of that aspects. And I think you know the the people that I have in my network are high net worth company owners, brand owners, businesses, brands, and and that's where a lot of the opportunities arise for people. Yeah. For me, it's a great driver for for sponsorship as well. Uh, and to showcase my my platform, um, I really should should try and grow my Twitter Twitter more. To be honest, well, it's good to update more. people on there as well. Maybe on, on, yeah. on what, how things are going, and maybe even yeah. YouTube video or something like blog or Instagram. Would be yeah, so to update uh, people on where you are and where the sponsorship hunt's going. Yeah, absolutely. So I've done a few blogs and uh, or vlogs. I think they're called yeah. now. Yeah. Um, and I'm slowly getting into it. So I did one when I went to uh. Miami with Vol uh, and and uh, LA last year working. Um, got to see some amazing cars. So you're on, is that a YouTube account you've got then for that? Uh, yes, yeah, so it's on my YouTube account, which is just Clayton Kingman. I think I don't even know what it is. <laughs> Google it; it'll come up. Google um, Clayton Kingman. Yeah, there's in, not many YouTube. Clayton Kingmans in the world. Um, and then I did some at the Race of Champions uh, in Mexico this year, where we launched the Double R, um, and uh, met your fellow colleague. Uh, Mr. Croft again. Oh, um, David Croft, yeah. We, we, yeah, I yeah, sort of see him occasionally at Sky Sports as a Formula One commentator at Sky Sports, but he used to actually uh, be a sort of regular presenter at BBC London when I was coming through, okay. so that's where I work with Crofty quite a bit. Yeah, he was tapping up for a, for a car for Formula One. So, um, <laughs> but, uh, yeah, so, you know, I'd met him the previous year, but we, we had a good chat and various others, so that was really cool. Um, and then I was out in Finland uh, a couple of weeks ago at... Uh, a nice driving experience, Juha Kankanen Driving Academy, um, which was the most incredible place. Um, so what's your, what's your favourite car then? What would you... Everybody either road this. car and a race car, what would you go for? If I could have any road car... I've never driven one, but the, the new Aston Martin Valkyrie looks, looks pretty incredible. <laughs> uh, and I've always grown up as a big Aston Martin fan. Um, race car... I don't really know. I'd love to to have a go in uh, one of the new, new TCR cars. I'd love to drive a Formula One car. Um, it's not something you can just get in and, and no, drive. No, there. yeah, it's not be really fun. To, yeah, you, um, yeah. you know, maybe an LMP3 car, uh, which is a Le Mans prototype car. That okay. would be be a great one. Uh, or the Aston Martin GT3. That would be would be cool as well. So. Yeah, I think I'm definitely a bit weird. I think because uh, we had a Mini Cooper Sport that was an absolute nightmare. It cost us loads of money, but I actually st- still have a soft spot for minis at the moment. We've got a BMW One Series and a Kia Sportage yeah. for the the family. But it's uh, it's been a pleasure speaking to you, Clayton Kingman. I think it is an inspirational story. The fact that you've you've kind of pioneered and persevered through all these setbacks and and kept the, the, the you know three thousand emails over winter to keep persevering. I think that's 
kind of inspiring not only for people wanting to get into motorsport but I think for people wanting to get into sports journalism my line of work I think it's very similar maybe hopefully you don't need to do 3,000 but I think that's a for modern life as well there's a lot of who you know not what you know and I think that's a huge huge part of it so that's inspirational the fact you've got to do that and live the dream and also I know you messaged me yesterday you were at the ballet with your little girl which I've got yeah. tomorrow so I know you're trying to be a, a good dad as well so appreciate it and it's a great story and you wish you the best of luck finding finding uh, the next the next big ride the next sponsorship yeah thanks it's uh, yeah it's you know I always enjoy sharing my story I go back to my old school you know any businesses that want to to do inspirational talks or anything then then I always try and help out and do that I always believe in giving back I've always worked with a charity every year ironically the Rio Fernand Foundation last year um, and I'll, I'll work with some kind of charity this year so yeah I mean any businesses looking for someone who's not just going to put your brand on the car and we'll uh We'll generally bring you business opportunities and growth and uh, and get in touch knows how to get attention in the attention attention yeah. economy isn't it yeah, what absolutely. Now. yeah um so so feel free to to get in touch i'd love to love to speak with you and see what opportunities i can i can create for you well i appreciate you coming up and i luckily you live the north side of bristol so it's not yeah. far from too far from Cheltenham, but do appreciate your time cheers mate thanks thank you hello guys welcome to another episode of sport plus life uh, thanks for listening and uh, clicking on the button i'm ed draper sports broadcaster in the UK, back on the boxing beat, which has been alongside football, my main sporting love uh, outside of my day job as a broadcaster for Sky Sports News, which is kind of all sport. But I'm in a gym in Sutton in South London, Raptors gym, uh, where Isaac Chamberlain, a British cruiserweight, has been uh, going through his paces. Isaac, you all right? It's a great session there. It's nice, <laughs> it's nice for me to watch, but how are you feeling? You, uh, you recovered from that? It's a good, good workout. Yeah, it was very good, you know. Um, it's a pleasure to be here, you know, and uh, it's a pleasure to bring you along as well to, to come and witness me training. Um, what can I say? Yeah, it was just um, good to get back into it, you know, because obviously I started, I was, I've been training for months on end with no yeah. rest. So it was good to just take a few days off just to clear my mind, relax my mind while Angel was in Dubai with another one of his fighters. Yeah. So it's, it's, it was good to really, I don't know, like re- take a bit of rest mentally and then come back. So I came back and I'm a lot sharper as well, you know, so I, it was just good to get back in there and, and punch again. Yeah, yeah, it's tough, man. Cause you had quite a big 12 months or so. You had the big uh, domestic fight against Lawrence O'Coley, a lot of big build up to that. You ended up um, getting defeated in that. But then you came back and beat Luke Watkins. But you said you're still, um, you're still working on kind of the next opponent. So how, how's it all been physically? Because you, you want to peak, don't you? But I suppose you're looking in great shape. So you're just, you're ticking over at the moment. Yeah, right now I'm just ticking over, you know, just um, planning um, what the next move is. And uh, the people behind me, they're just um, planning what's going to happen next. You know, yeah. the, the opponents and... and, and there's going to be a big announcement coming very soon. So I'm just waiting, just biding my time and just yeah. taking everything day by day because I think that's the main thing. Just take take things day by day, step by step. You can't really look too much into the future because when you look too much into into the future, you forget the now. Yeah. So I just think it's it's good to just sit back, take my time and just work on what I'm working on for that day. You have to focus on the process, don't you? Because I, th- I suppose in boxing you have long-term goals, but... You can't live in the in the future because it, it can kind of drive you drive you crazy, I suppose. Yeah, definitely. Um, just trust the process. You know, that's the main thing. Just trust the process, knowing that, you know, um, it's just you just have to just be consistent with it. You know, that's the that's one of the things that's really um, 
that's that's really stuck with me and that's one of the characters that the character traits that i've had since i was a kid i was always consistent yeah you know i was always consistent always in the gym like no matter what happened i never really got um sidetracked there's times where i could have been sidetracked you know mm-hmm. but i just kept consistent because boxing was a place where when i'm in the gym i just it's just a different feeling you know it's like you get away from everything you're just i feel like i'm at peace when i'm in the ring do you find it almost like people talk about meditation? Do you find it, it puts you in that present moment? Yeah, it's stop, stop thinking. It's escape from, yeah, from yeah. Over, overthinking. Yeah, definitely. It's just, it's just when you get in the ring, you just flow. You just, you just better. You just you, you be yourself. You know, I think boxing gave that voice to a lot of kids that had low self-esteem. Like myself, when I was young, I had, when I was like 12, 11, I had low self-esteem. I didn't really believe in myself. Yeah. The only reason why I kept coming to the gym because the coaches kept saying, you can be a champion, you can be something. And um, I never heard those words of encouragement from anyone, not my mom, not, not teachers, not no one. So that's why I kept coming back, so I can hear those words of encouragement. And they give people that can't speak, they, it makes them express their themselves through boxing. Yeah, you have mentors in that, in that as well, don't you, I suppose, oh, as yeah, a kid? Definitely, definitely. And um, boxing can apply to everything in life, you know. If it can apply to a lot of things you know if if you can look up you can get up if you're on the ropes you can bounce back if you get knocked down you can get up again yeah it all applies to life you know if you look up you can get up is that les brown the motivational speaker does he say that one that's a yeah yeah. it's good it's it's, it's good man you know and uh it's just just learning to love it you know johnny nelson told me as well he was just like don't forget to enjoy what you're doing because when it's gone, it's gone. Yeah. <laughs> well, he, he was threatening to come back, wasn't he? In his know, like 48 of the other year when, when Marco Huck was, yeah. uh, was there. So that's the, that's the thing. He, like, could... he, he always said that always enjoy what you're doing. You know, enjoy the process. Yeah. Because you only get one chance to do all of this. You know, so just enjoy it because uh, you're not going to, you're going to be pissed off if you're like <laughs> in the future and you didn't enjoy what you're doing. Yeah. You didn't have fun with it. One life, yeah. If you get, I know some people believe in reincarnation, but if you think you've got one life, you may as well enjoy it and make the most of it. It's interesting you say that because I don't know whether it happens in boxing, but certainly I work in TV and there's people in TV who are good, do a solid job, but don't always enjoy it. They get stressed out still by being on live TV. And sometimes you get that maybe in sport that someone's good at a sport, but might not necessarily enjoy it. Have you, have you found that sometimes? Um, or boxing, do you have to be so dedicated to, to You have get to there? be so dedicated, you know, um, you have to be just so, so dedicated. And um, with, with boxing, it's not even about motivation anymore. Like, I think I've, I've done it for so long now. It's not even about, oh, do I have to get motivated to do that? I just do it. I think the main thing to be a top athlete is, is consistency hmm. and uh, discipline. Just be consistent and be disciplined. And, and, and you'll have the, the, the plan there. You know, motivation, I think we've passed that because I'm basically living my dream. Yeah you know, as a professional fighter, you know, and uh, I'm just, I always, I have a mind where I'm always trying to be better, you know, I'm always trying to be better, how do I get better, how do I um, Does that bleed into other parts of your life as well, like if you, if you become boxing, you become skilled at that, you, you become disciplined elsewhere, yeah, and definitely. perhaps you become like kind of, when you, when you leave boxing eventually, maybe it'll, it'll give you that intent to, to set goals in other li- lines of work, yeah, be it business or whatever. 100%, 100%, it makes you think, do you know what, I've, I've worked hard and I've gotten this far, you know, and I've dedicated myself, you'll probably think, what else can I dedicate myself to? Yeah, you know, and and work harder. You and know, it's achievable. Yeah, yeah, you know, whatever you put your mind to, it's achievable. You know, so that, that's what I kind of think as well. 
Well, yeah, man, it's just... <laughs> boxing is it's crazy. It's like a drug. Well, you said to me last week you wanted to get a few things off your chest, and I wasn't sure what that was about. What what was the, the issue? Because I wasn't sure whether you'd put something up about knife crime, whether it was that or whether it was um, just your a lot career. of things, you know, just a lot of things, um, you know, especially with like even with what you said about knife crime, like it's just a, it's a joke, like it's it's kind of it's getting out of hand now, you know. My, and start, this is why your personal history with you, this yeah, is why you got into boxing. Yeah, I got into boxing because my cousin, you know. Um, when I was young, I was about 11, 12 years old. My cousin, as soon as he passed his ECSEs, um, he got into an altercation with another gang because obviously he was in, in that lifestyle and he got stabbed in the heart. And obviously he passed away. And um, a lot of people, I mean, sorry, a lot, a lot of his friends and even my family, they hate, they like, it was a really, really sad time. Yeah. Because it was a really no, sad time. No, I can time. imagine, yeah, to lose a child is terrible, but to lose it in that way is yeah, it's, it's it's, even worse. It's, Horrific. Have your family recovered your aunt's aunt, um, aunt and uncle? I don't really ask. No. Obviously, it's, it's really sad. You know, even though it was a long, long time ago, but it's, it's really sad. You never really recover. Yeah. And I believe... Look at this guy. Oh, <laughs> my God. It's your, coach, your trainer's just singing as he dances. No, he's just singing. He always sings my name. He sings my name. But, yeah, um, what can I say? Like, um, It was a really sad time. And... Um, that's, my mum put me in the gym because she realised that right, I was going, I was going, I was kind of going down that route as well because it's kind of inevitable. You become a product of your environment. But you said you don't almost have a choice in that situation either because of the fact that everyone is, you know, in your. That's where you live. That's in your face. That if you don't stick up for yourself to a certain extent, you will become. Um, you're reclusive. You'll get, get victimised. Do you know what I mean? So you have to really defend yourself and act a certain way, so you can just. It's like, it's like in prison, probably. You know, you're like if you get victimized on the first day, yeah, then that's the worst thing you could probably do. Yeah, do you know what I mean. So it's just. So you need to get some some measure of respect, but it's you don't yeah. want to get involved in that because what I mean, what what can change the culture there? Do you think getting kids more into sport, more focused um, about um, something, like discipline? They, they shut down a lot, a lot of youth clubs. You know, they shut down a lot of youth clubs. They shut down. Um, after school clubs, they shut down football academies and, and basketball play. Like, if yeah. kids know each other, they're not going to want to stab each other. And youth clubs and stuff, it brought all the kids around the area together. It brought everyone together. So, and they're shutting the one thing that was getting everyone together. It makes no yeah. sense. Do you know what I mean? It was shutting everything down. And it's, it's kind of a joke. You know, it was, it's, 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 it's a joke, man. So I'm just thinking, what's the... Like... The one thing that was keeping the kids together, you're closing it down. So what do you expect? Like people, they're more likely these kids. They're more likely to stab someone they don't know than to stab someone they do. Yeah, do you know what I mean. Well, it's a wasted energy, though, isn't it? To, to you think to like to, to, to be involved in that hate yeah. game where you're you're hating the, someone else who, who's probably is, a lot a lot like you as well. It's probably got a lot in common. That like you say, if you if you played yeah. sport with them or you sat down with them and had a conversation, you realise that you were similar. It's that them and us thing in society, yeah. isn't it? And the, one of the worst things as well is this is the social media, because now if you if you go and have a fight and someone gets like there's like for example two fourteen year old kids for example mm. have a fight and um, the other guy beats him up or whatever. Back in the day, it was like okay, whatever, you, you, it's done. But yeah. Now because of social media, they'll upload it on Instagram and everyone. You're not just laughing. See, so publicly shaming someone. Yeah, publicly or... shaming. That's what makes that's what makes these kids retaliate and be like, Do you know what? I can't take this embarrassment, and I'm gonna have to go and stab him or something. 
Yeah. You know what I mean, that's, that's what they... Do you think these kids who perpetrate the crime, do they know the severity of it? Are they going to take someone's life, um, potentially? I think, it's, I think they're just in the moment of the anger and the rage and stuff. I think that's, they're just in the moment. I don't know what they're probably thinking. Yeah. You know, it might be the music, it might be something that's fueling it, but when you're stuck with your own thoughts, like, no, I can't let him do this to me. No, 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 no. Every time I go on Instagram, somebody's laughing or making comments or making funny jokes about me. Yeah. Oh, do you know what? I'm going to flip it. There's no escape, is there? Well, I suppose yeah. when I was a kid, you could you could go home and you didn't see kids over the weekend until the Monday morning and then, you know, your house was kind of a sanctuary, whereas now, yeah, now, now you're constantly plugged in. Everywhere. Everyone has social media now. No one really plays out, plays football and bags, <laughs> bags and stuff. I think my age was the last era of doing that. Yeah. So I mean, now, That's a shame. Yeah, it's, bro, it's crazy, man. Now everyone's on iPhones and Playstations and stuff. Yeah. Do you think boxing, one of the things it teaches is, is a sense of what violence is and what the impact is when you, when you get hit, but also a respect yeah. for people? Because it seems when you come into boxing, everyone shakes hands, everyone's, you know, everyone's friendly. No, it, shows, it definitely shows respect because, um, you know, everyone can fight. Yeah, yeah. Everyone can fight. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Everyone in the gym can fight. So, of course, it shows the respect that, listen, you know, you know how to handle yourself. They know how to handle themselves. So, it's like a very mutual And it's respect. based within rules as well, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, definitely. And they know what it's like to train and, and it's mentally tough being a fighter. And I think that's because of how tough it is that you get everyone's respect, especially yeah. in the boxing gym, you know, because we all know what we've been through, you know, as a like training camp and and fighting and, and sparring and all, all of that stuff. Yeah, you, said, you, sort of you said your mum was the one that pushed you into boxing. I mean, she was yeah. obviously, you know, I guess prophetic in doing that because it's, it's worked out so well. But mm. how much do you, do you sort of thank her for, for that decision for, to push you into it? Yeah, I definitely thank her a whole lot, you know, because I, I don't know what I would have been doing. I would probably would have went down that same road. You know what I mean? I definitely would have went down that same road and and probably been in jail or dead or whatever you know I don't know yeah because I'm the type of person that you know if I'm stuck if I'm on something and I want to be the best at it yeah I mean that's why when I'm training I'm training differently now I want to be the best you know I want to be world champion I want to have world honors I want to be an elite level fighter you know I'm working towards that so in in whatever I do I would have wanted to be the best at it so if I was going to go down (laughs) the wrong road I would have been the worst do you think? Yeah, yeah. Do you think parents, because your mum had that influence, do you think par- is parenting a big part of it? Can can they help oh, before yeah, before the kids get to an age where they where they start hanging out in those groups where there may be gangs? I think communication is the key. You know, communication is the key. You need to communicate with your kids. You know, especially like growing up with um, African household or even like black British household, mm. there's no real communication. Really? You know I mean? Yeah, there's no real communication. Is your heritage from Africa then? Or, yeah, 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 my yeah. parents are Congolese. Okay. You know, but I was born here. Yeah. So it's, it's like, you know, I mean, I think, I don't know, because obviously I was the oldest. You know, my mum had me at 17. You know, I was the oldest. It's a challenge, um, yeah. Yeah, so obviously it's a bit difficult. You know, and she kind of raised me on her own. So it's kind of like, I'm like the experiment. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? <laughs> well, so, it probably worked out all right, pretty, pretty much. But yeah, well, well, that's had, hard when you're a kid yourself, pretty yeah, much. So I've had to, I've had to grow out. by myself a whole lot, though. You yeah. know, I've had to grow by myself. At least, thankfully, I was very wise when I was young. You know, I was very streetwise as well when I was re- when I was really young. So I've had to really work out a lot of things on my own. You know, and, and it kind of worked out for my favour. But it was good because I was in the gym from like 11, 12. If I, if I wasn't, then I don't know what would have happened. Yeah. 
Well, you're, but you're, you're a voice of reason and calmness on social media, to be fair, and you're often you know, talking about the futility of all the, the knife crime and the deaths and things like that. But you see things sometimes, like Dillian White's obviously a great example of someone who's, who's, who's brought himself up from the, the streets to do well, but there's almost a, you know, there's a bit of beef on social media between, between him and Lawrence O'Coley recently. Do you think boxers have a responsibility not to, to engage in too much, I guess, kind of animosity? Um, How, what's your take on it? Because it's difficult because you have to sell fights as well, don't you? Yeah, it's difficult because you have to sell fights, but obviously yeah, they, we understand, I think they, they kind of understand it's show business. Yeah, do you know what I mean? It's, it's show business, and uh, sometimes you can get drawn into it a bit too much. Becomes a bit like WWE, doesn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It comes like WWE, but you, you, it's. I think as long as no one gets hurt. Yeah, do you know what I mean? As long as it doesn't go beyond the ring, then it's okay. Because you don't want boxers fighting outside the ring, do you? That's yeah, the... you don't want. No, it's not even the boxers that fight. It's like people like the people around them attached to them. Yeah, yeah, people around them. They're gonna be the ones that's fighting or they'll take it serious. Yeah. You know what I mean? Because obviously, they're thinking like, oh, you're talking all of this shit. Yeah. Yeah, and you're going you're gonna to say it. Like, and then obviously, and you're with them, you're going to be like, no, I have to do something about that because, because of how... So you're trying to show off to your entourage a little bit sometimes, or yeah. keep face, yeah. So it's just, it's a bit mad. How do you, uh, who do you surround yourself with friends-wise? Because it can, can almost seem that, that entourages sometimes with boxers can, can sort of, um, I guess, escalate it. No, I just, you know, I just have friends that I've been with from the start. Yeah. Know? I mean, I like having the friends that, that know me, because obviously as you get older and as you progress in boxing, you have a lot of hangers-on and people that are just there because of your fame or people are there because of, of, of what you've achieved in boxing and they just want to be around you. Yeah. Or just to post that, or to post pictures on Instagram that they're with <laughs> you and stuff. Do you know what I mean? But it's, it, I, I like being with the people that I've been with from the start. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So, because they, they know me the best. I mean, because they know yeah. be the best, and if something kicks off or something goes wrong, they'll be there. Yeah, and they liked yeah. you and respected you before that happened, yeah. anyway. So yeah, that's yeah, the, yeah. the difference, right? Yeah, definitely. So it's, it's you know that's that's the type of people I hang around. I hang around with. You know, I don't really go out much because if I go out, it's sometimes it's a bit too much, man. Really? Yeah, what people come so, up to you and recognize yeah, yeah, you? Yeah, all, all the time. But it's just like. I don't really. I'm not really a party person. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I'm not really a party. Well, it looks like, like you live the life because you're in good shape now and you haven't got a fight coming up. So you're yeah, obviously just, dedicated to keeping yourself ticking over. Yeah. I mean. I mean. Yeah. Yeah. You're, you're actually right. You know. And um, as you get more experience in boxing, like you can, I don't think fitness is kind of a problem. Yeah. Because you kind of learn how to breathe through the rounds. Like you go the ten rounds, twelve rounds. When you when you're that level of a fighter. You kind of know how to breathe and pace yourself. You keep your emotional hours. state a bit less because I remember Darren Barker saying when you first start boxing, it's because you get this adrenaline rush, like anything you do for the first time. When the lights come on, even though mm. you've trained hard, you almost overtrain because you have to prepare yourself. But once you've experienced, I guess you don't have that emotional kind of rush quite as much when you when you go into the ring. Mm. Yeah, yeah, he's it's, it's, it's actually very right. I remember that when I really started getting used to it, and it was when I fought Luke Watkins. Yeah. And look at the, the oh, your last fight. Yeah, and look at the difference in how I how I performed. You know, I showed all my skills. I showed um, I was relaxed. I showed class. I knew what I was doing. You know, the first the first round, I wanted to establish myself straight away. You know, second round, I wanted to see what he's doing. The third round, I wanted the fourth round. You know, I came with the, the um, with the combinations, and, I, and then I knew if you see that fight after every. After the last thirty seconds of every round, 
Yeah. I would go in. Boom, 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 boom. Because yeah. I, I don't know. I just had a timer in my head mentally. I knew, okay, the, first, the first, last 30 seconds was coming. Was that savvy known about the judges, the way that they you leave a lasting impression in them? When yeah, they yeah, score? yeah, yeah. That's yeah. what I learned that from watching guys like James Tony. And, uh, Felix Stern was like that as well. I remember against Matthew Macklin, he'd always yeah, finish the rounds fast. And, yeah. strong. and the sixth round, I took it off. I remember I took the sixth round off just to get my breath back so I could finish the last four very, very strong. And that's what I did. And obviously... So you're able to start thinking outside of yourself a bit more now when you're in the ring? Uh, yeah, it's, it's just experience. It comes with that. And obviously, it's, it's better for me because um, I ain't been blessed with being as strong as... Um, as these other cruiserweights, you know, I would, yeah. I would, obviously I would, that's why I would make up for it. I would make up for it with my smartness and my skill. Do you know what I mean? I make up for it with my smartness and my skill. So, uh, you say you're not big, but you almost seem a perfect size for a cruiserweight well, in some I ways, am. don't you? Yeah, I mean, you're like, what, 6'3 and a big, big thick set. You said you put weight on your legs as well, it seems. Yeah, I know, but before it wasn't, before <laughs> it wasn't, like, before it was about, it was, uh, I was small. So obviously I had to, like, you said that was part of the problem with fighting Lawrence Okoli, who, you know, in terms of natural advantages, is pretty much a heavyweight, isn't he? Yeah, yeah, he just hugged me to death anyway. <laughs> if you wanted to fight, I, I came for a fight. I didn't come for hugging. <laughs> yeah. How did, you deal, how did you deal with that, the first defeat of your career, though? Did, did it take a bit of psychological processing afterwards, um, or were you straight, straight back it at it? Yeah, no, no, no. It took, it took a, a while, obviously, because obviously uh, when you work so hard for something, because obviously even though it was a bit of overtraining, I did work extremely hard for it. You know, sparring, sparring 12 rounds, running 8 miles, sparring 12 rounds, running 8 miles and working my ass off. So obviously when you put everything into it and yeah. it doesn't go well, obviously it takes a lot of character. You know, it takes a lot of character to to build yourself back. And uh, how can I say it? That obviously but you felt you overtrained a bit and you, you, yeah, you yeah. ultimately changed trainers after that. Definitely. But obviously some other things happened after the fact. Mm. You know, in terms of money being taken and obviously stuff happened with my old trainer. Really? Yeah, so... Have you heard about... No, I don't know the full story about that, no. Yeah, so, you know, um, after the fight, um, my uncle stole some money, like, 10 grand went missing, obviously he lied about it, then he, then he admitted it, then just... just Is he your own uncle? Yeah, my own uncle. I mean, that must have hurt. Oh, of course, you know, like, it was just... A difficult time because obviously a lot of things happened you know I lost my first fight yeah you know big fight in front of all these thousands of people and um he stole money so it's kind of like that's like two losses because obviously I really trusted him do you know what I mean I trusted him a whole lot yeah um but how's your family now yeah yeah it's is good. it they reconciled yeah. everything right no with you? I don't talk to him yeah you know, but obviously there's no like bad energy is or that bad. your mum's brother yeah Oh, wow. So how she how she processed it? Um, obviously she was pissed off. Yeah, like, it's, it's, trust has been broken. You know what I mean? But um, you just have to deal with it and carry on. You know, it just shows a true test of character to come back from all of that madness that was happening, and then um, to come back from all of that and then come back and have the performance that I've had. Yeah. And as as long as I learn from it, then I don't call it a loss. I just call it a lesson. As long as I learn from it. If I didn't learn from it, then it would have been a bit different. Sure. Do you know what I mean? It almost feels like there's a bit of a bottleneck in the, the British cruiserweight scene. Sometimes there's guys of your quality and Lawrence Okoli obviously has got now the win over Wadi Camacho, so he's sort of dominant British and Commonwealth champion, but he's been linked to world title fights. Do you think that it needs everyone to sort of move through a bit? Is that kind of the process? It, uh, potentially Okoli um, to go and fight Lebedev for a, a world title and then 
I guess they'd leave the, the British scene a bit bit vacant. Um, well, I, I don't know. You know, he can he can do it. He can win a world title by beating Lebedev. Obviously, Lebedev is old, and yeah, you know, it's perfect timing to get him. But um, obviously, I beat Camacho two years ago with one arm. Yeah, so no, it's, it's true. Kinda like, you know, going from there to, yeah. to Camacho. So what would you like to do? Would the Brit- is the British title a big thing for you or is it more about um, whatever opportunity it's, it's, comes it's, up, it's if it's overseas it's or not? It's basically whatever opportunity. Do you know what I mean? It's basically whatever opportunity comes. So we're just waiting. You know, we're just waiting um, for the right fights, for the right time. You know what I mean? People are asking on social media whether you're still promoted by Matchroom. You say you still are with, with Matchroom. Yeah, you know, but... Um, they're just right at the moment. The, the, the offers that they're giving is kind of like crazy. I've been, I've, I've beaten two Commonwealth champions now. Where's my belt? Yeah. Like they said, Watkins' fight was gonna be for a title. It wasn't for a title. And then they're offering me someone like Bill Smith for shit money and no belt. You know, it's kind of like what's going on. Do you know what I mean? And what's the balance? In, do you think that's just because there's, they can't find anyone out there to, mit, to no, match you with? Not, that can't be it because. You know, Battery is the biggest promotion in the world. If they're gonna find something, they're gonna find someone. Yeah. Come on now. <laughs> have you got have you got names of people that you would like that you look at uh, that you um, kind of watch on YouTube? You think that they're a good level, good profile, good opponent? Yeah, yeah. Um, my coaches, my coaches and and my management, they watch that all the time. They watch all the time who who we could um we could fight. Yeah. And uh, it's just right now I just need belts, man. Do you know what I mean? Belts, and obviously he has to have reasoning behind it. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? It has to make sense, like. Because if you look, like there's a Google thing that you can see um, how many times you've been searched up. Like me and Lawrence, <laughs> most searched for out of everyone. Really? Everyone else I'm fighting, no one really knows them. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I can sell tickets. Like I can sell a whole lot. Like man, I'm like when I fought at the O2, everyone was there for me basically. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? They were all cheering for me. So what does that show? Got good, know, good be, fan base. I can be a household name. I mean, Which is a big part of the business, we're told, isn't it? In boxing, yeah, it's oh, not. It's obviously, talent's important, but it's about profile and about yeah, fan, to, fan base and selling tickets. I, I got that. Like, it's yeah. not like I don't have it. Like, no, do you know what I mean? I've got that. So, it's just a matter of taking my time, you know. And I've realised as well that you know I'm the youngest. I just turned twenty five. All these guys, twenty eight, twenty nine, thirty, thirty two. Yeah. All literally, all of them. Do you know what I mean? And you're coming into your man strength and things like the next few yeah, years yeah, as well. Yeah. So. We just, we just right now. All I need to do is just take my time and uh, prepare the way I've been preparing. And when a big fight comes, I'm gonna take it with both hands. But obviously, it has to be smart. Well, do you? It's a conundrum as well, isn't it? Do you wait for the big fight, or do you want just another ticking over fight chance for your fans to see you, things like that? If, as long yeah, as you're open about it being not a huge event, but just something to to kind no, of get out. Of course, I don't mind. I don't mind. I don't yeah. mind it. Do you know what I mean? But um, you know. You have to know your worth. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? You have to know your worth. And uh, how do you know that? It's difficult, isn't it? It's the whole debate in the heavyweight scene at the moment with Anthony Joshua and Deontay Dylan, Wilder. They're all, uh, you know, debating who's even worth Joshua what. Joshua and Dylan, and I, and I respect Dylan a whole lot for that. You know, he knows his worth. He's not just going to offer anything um, that they put up. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? He's not going to offer anything that they put up. And obviously, I don't know. Like Joshua is obviously the main guy. Mm-hmm. The main guy in the division, obviously, the guy that brings in everything, all the money, the golden goose. Yeah, do you know what I mean? But do you think sometimes you have to take a short term hit if you if you think long term it it um, leads to bigger payments? Because I wonder that with with even with Anthony Joshua, with Dylan White, for all of them, that potentially when these matches are made, yeah. there's going to be more public interest for rematches and and just yeah, for no, the, the heavyweight I think, scene. I think, um, Dylan was 
a bit upset because they they said they they had a rematch clause in the contract that they were gonna have, and obviously in the rematch clause it was still seventy thirty to Joshua. Yeah. So it's kind of like, whoa, what the heck is going on? Like, because in that I'm scenario, Dillian White would be multiple world champion. Yeah. 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 So obviously the, it changes when you're the world, you're the champ. You know what I mean? So that's that's the thing. That's the reason why they were a bit pissed. So obviously Dillian's thinking. Like, whose side are you on? I know you're both promoted, you know what I mean, but you're yeah. both promoted by Eddie, but whose side are you on? Do you know what I mean? Where's his best interest at? That is difficult, isn't it? It's difficult for the promoters to work that out, That's I suppose. probably like me and Lawrence. Do yeah. you know what I mean? Like, where's his... I probably would have been in the same situation if I beat Lawrence. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Because obviously his interest is with the Olympic boys and... And, yeah, uh, you know, well, it's funny that I do some I do some freelance work for Matchroom. They've always been good people to me in terms of presenting stuff for them. Um, but what I do know is it, it seems complex. There's so much work goes in on their side to organise these events and yeah. pull it together that that perhaps it's I, I guess it's not something that I you know I can't imagine the logistics of it. Or it must be a challenging challenging job for for those people. Yeah, it's just it's just long. You know, it's just kind of long. But um, do you think boxing would be better if you had mandated fixtures like the governing bodies just said? You fight X, Y, and Z, and yeah, but they'll still make problems out of it. Yeah, they'll make money problems, they'll make <laughs> pass bids, and all of that stuff. There will be because there's so many governing bodies, aren't there? There's a... Yeah, there's so many. Do you know what I mean? But it, that just also shows that there's there's more chance of you being a world champion. Yeah, do you know what I mean. There's there's more ways of of guiding your career, making the right decisions to to reach to where you want to be. You yeah, know what I mean? which I think is we're in the gym here, and there's I think they do a lot of mixed martial arts training yeah. here as well. UFC's big, and it's kind of UFC. Pretty much, you know, people like Conor McGregor almost have the power to, to kind of pull their weight a little bit. But a lot of people there generally just get a fixture list and told you're fighting X. Yeah, do you yeah, think that? I mean, is that would that be better for you as a boxer, just being able to think about training, or, would, or do you like the sense um, that you, in boxing you can plot your route and you can create a story like I guess like Tony Bellew created that big story about yeah. fighting at Goodison Park and everything. You can you can create that story. Boxing has more, um, you're more open. You can kind of guide your way a bit. I think UFC. I don't know much about it, but it's kind of fixed. Mm. Sure, I mean it's kind of like you do as you say, and there's nothing else you can do. Yeah, sure, I mean, but with boxing, it you can kind of guide your own way and and be yourself and yeah. be, and make yourself into a star, which is like a good thing. Get the timing you know right. Because I mean? like, with me, it's it's like I never had a crazy amateur background. I never went to Olympics. I had nine amateur fights. Really? You know, but the only thing that kept me working was my discipline and my and my dedication. Why did you turn over quickly? Then we just felt you had it. Absolute um, for professional, or you wanted to make some money? I was broke. <laughs> Fair enough. I didn't want to go to those selling drugs or nothing, you know. I was yeah. Broke, so I just thought, you know, let me help my mom and, and just try and turn professional. And, you know, if, if you think you can do it, you, why not? You know, you don't want yeah. to live life with no regrets ever, you know. So, um, good for you. That's why I've done it. <laughs> would, you, would you take a, like a European level fight now, title fight? Because we've seen that recently in, in the last few months. People like Ted Cheeseman perhaps have jumped out too early. Lewis Ritson did it last year. That there is a, there is a you know, I think domestic scene is bubbling for the cruiserweights, like you point out. Mm-hmm. But sometimes we underestimate the craft of, of the top Spanish or top German out yeah, there. True. Yeah, I would, I would, I would 100% take it. Like, I'm a foul. That's, that's my job. I would definitely take this fast. But obviously, the risk-reward factor has to be right. Do you know what I mean? The risk reward factor has to be right. Like yeah. For example, the Billum Smith fight. I got offered Billum Smith, you know, for no title and crap money, April the twentieth. But coming up in was, the O2 Arena, yeah, which is if it, if it was a, if it was for a, great, a, a belt and a good money, hundred percent, I'll take yeah. it. Yeah. 
it has to make sense now. But would you be confident? You'd be pretty confident winning that fight, would you presume? Well, yeah, as well? definitely. I'll, come on, yeah. man. I'll, yeah. I'll, yeah. I'll definitely be confident winning that fight. Look, I've changed so much as a fighter. Do you know what I mean? I've changed. I've definitely changed so much as a yeah. fighter, and that's put me on watch a whole lot. You know, everybody's watching me now. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? But you, but you're determined to work out that value thing and make sure you get it right. I mean, I think Dave Allen did. He's going to sort of co-headline that, but he took five mm-hmm. months out. He was boxing most every month before that and he yeah. started to make an intent and create I guess a, a character for himself in a sense that I'm a guy that doesn't want to box every month for you know for, for kind of short notice fights you want to you want to be be a main guy yeah. you want to take it serious you want to be a main guy and, and um, boy, I don't know man <laughs> it's just crazy man is there any domestic opponent you'd like to fight? could you have a rematch with Lawrence Coley would you go for that for the, oh, yeah, the British I would I would definitely 100% go for it but um, right now I think it's um, in both our interests. He goes his way, I go my way, you know. And then, you know, we could fight up. Um, we both reach the top. We could fight for for world honors. Yeah, Do you know what I mean, that would make Do, a lot more sense. Physically, he's six feet five inches tall. He's got a reach, I think, longer than Anthony Joshua's. I mean, his frame is—he's quite lanky at the moment. But do you think he's going to fill out and find it hard to make cruiserweight at some point? Do you think that um, it's natural for him to go up, or do you think his advantages lie with staying at cruiserweight? Um, I think his advantage is like staying in cruiserweight. You know what I mean? Because obviously the heavyweights are they're big boys. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And once um, you once you negate the reach, then maybe yeah, it becomes about power. So you know, you know he will keep getting better. I'll keep getting better, and it will be a better fight. Do you yeah. It will be a better fight in the future. You take I mean Dennis Lebedev. I saw him box in Mon- in Monaco last year. Um, lovely guy came up to me, but he's kind of my height. He's like you know five eleven six foot, and I think for you guys he'd be, you know. You'd fancy your chances to. He's a very skilled southpaw boxer, but potentially at this stage, you know, with youth on your side, would you take an opportunity like that? Because it seems like with Usyk having all the belts and moving out of the division now, there is suddenly an opportunity oh, at the cruiserweight. Everyone, yeah, yeah, I'll, I'll definitely take that. I'll definitely take that chance. You know, that's like an opportunity of a lifetime to fight for a world title. So, um, yeah, I'll definitely take that with both hands. But um, like everything, will be down to my team and the people behind me. Yeah. to really make these decisions and we, we all come to an agreement together. I think that's the main thing. Yeah, no, it's definitely it's a lot of, lot of uh, people going into it and having their say, which is, which is complicated, I can imagine. Quick, um, quick thought on, on football. Do you, have you got a football team or anything you're aligned to? Because often that's a big thing, isn't it? Have you got any, um, any affinity to any? I don't, I don't know, I don't really watch football. Well, no, but you're honest, you're honest, because a lot of people try and, you know, yeah, Tony Bellier lived off the, the, the Everton connection, which is definitely genuine because he goes there all the time, but some people almost, they want to, uh, John Ryder, I think, goes to Arsenal, doesn't he, and things like that, but sometimes that can, that can Josh um, Warrington and Leeds, it can, it can bring a, a fan base with it, can't it, as well. Yeah, some boxing people get a bit snobbish about that and say that the, the football fans are hooligans, but... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, boxing fans are hooligans too, man. Well, it can be, yeah. Well, some um, of Honestly, all I do is just train and go home. So boxing, <laughs> boxing is your main sport, though. You never had a an, out, an interest outside. I tried of it. to play football before, but I was fucking shit. Really? Yeah. What position did you play or try to play? Uh, boy, no, I used to play in school, innit? Yeah. So, it's oh, just, just, just in the playground. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> play anyway, yeah. probably a good rugby player, actually. Um, mm. But yeah, just going back to what we started about the talk. What would you? What would your advice be to to anyone out there who's listening? Um, because there's people who look up to you from South London in particular, but I think urban communities all over the UK where they're struggling, where life's tough, where you've got opportunities that seem slim to, to progress and perhaps you're, you're mired in gang stuff, in rivalries, in tensions, you're getting wound up on social media. 
what would your advice be to be to them about how to navigate that time of their life because the, the reality as well that time comes and goes doesn't it and, yeah. and everyone grows up eventually so it's just getting through it um just find something you love and just work at it you know find a career find something that you really love and just keep going and keep plugging away it's not gonna get easy it's gonna get easy but at the start it's gonna be hard you know yeah. at the start it's gonna be hard it's not gonna be it's gonna be tough but you just have to grind and 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 just keep working keep working and grinding up and um you'll reach where you want to get you know you'll reach where you want to get to that's the that's like the main thing yeah do you know what i mean so and just, is it physically just you said you can't be victimized um and, and be sort of you know the weak the weak member of the community but by the same token is it is it a case of turning the other cheek and just thinking if you have to stay indoors for for a while get through your teen years and, and study or, or or dedicate yourself no, to a sport really, whatever it is you really say that you know um because you don't want to be, like, imprisoned in your own house. No, no. Do you know what I mean? So, just... Be sensible about situations yeah, you get sensible, Just be streetwise, you know, and sensible about a lot of situations that you get into. Do you know what I mean? That's, like, the main thing. Yeah. You know, and don't be afraid to talk. You know, there's... Like, even in boxing, talk to your coaches, talk to your trainers, like, have that communication with them, because, obviously, that's, like that helps a lot yeah you know talking about things that you're going through it's a psychological process not just a physical one yeah it helps a lot you know talking about things that you're going through because um the coaches and stuff they've been they've all been there before you know guys that are older than you they've all been there before so it's good to talk about these things and uh yeah just and everyone feels the same don't everyone feels the same fear the same anger the whole emotional range and knowing you're not alone i think it's a big big thing yeah definitely i think that's like the most important thing yeah. Most important thing, man. Hey, man, it's been good to talk. I really appreciate it. Thank and you, uh, good luck getting a five. You can keep in touch on social media because we connected on social media. And I've watched a few of my colleagues did the straight out of Com- straight out of Compton, straight, straight out of Brixton. Brixton. <laughs> <laughs> that's always a riff off, but it, that's a good thing to watch because is, is that still available? I can't remember, don't, um, on Sky Sports on, on Demand or is it on YouTube? Maybe it's on both. I think Sky Sports on Demand and YouTube. Yeah. So which is your story coming through? When I was younger. Yeah. 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 How long ago is that? Two, three years? Like, no, like four, man. Is it four years? Four years ago, I saw it. it was like well, was it around years. your professional debut then? Yeah, I think it was my third fight. Now, how did that come about? Because I know Donal O'Keefe and Ed Damrell from um, Sky Sports. How I did think that... Tim Hobbs. Yeah. Because obviously I speak to Tim a whole lot. Yeah. You know, and um, Tim was like, yeah, man, we should try and get a documentary going about you in Brixton or whatever, whatever. And I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. And then they just came to the gym and they were just like, yeah, we're going to do this. <laughs> I was like, oh crap, you are serious. Yeah, well, it's a good story. Yeah. It's amazing. Yeah. But that shows you, again, only four years of your career. So, I mean, it's, you've got time on your hands, haven't you? That's oh, the thing. Definitely. Definitely. I've got a lot of time, but I just have to, at a blink, it could be 30. Do you yeah. Know what I mean, so it's just. So, like, mate, I'm 37, so I'm going to be blinking in 40. <laughs> but not, yeah, not fighting, luckily. No, but it's, you know, it's just, I just have to stay committed and stay grafted. Grafting, you know, that's the main thing. Yeah. I just have to keep my mind on, on the ball. And be savvy about your money as well. You said you're going to invest in property. You're going to buy a place, which is yeah, which is good, right? Because boxing, it's easy to just yeah. spend each purse. Yeah, it's true. It's easy to just splash. But my mum is onto me so much, you know. That's so good. right now I'm just sorting out my mortgage right near the gym. So just yeah, you're buying out. literally. So because you, you want to be right by the gym here, don't you? No, you're not from far away in Streatham, Brixton, or whatever. But yeah. you want to be down here in Sutton, close by. Yeah, and it's obviously it's a great investment as well. You know, a great investment. Just be smart with my money and just. Yeah, you know, just just be wise because I've seen a lot of fighters. You know, they they're at the top of the world and they're coming back down, and then they're working to get a long time again. retired, aren't you? Yeah, it's it's not good, man. Yeah, 
Well, get in, make some money, get, keep your health and be an inspiration like you are, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Straight, you're right, man. Oh, it's all, don't, don't need an economics degree, but it's, I think London property is always a solid investment, so it sounds a, a, good, uh, a good move. It's expensive, though. Yeah, <laughs> no, <laughs> that's why I moved out. Well, good yeah, luck, man. Take care. Thank you, boss.